Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Martin, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. This is my first time at NYU Abu Dhabi. In fact, it's my first time in, the UI, in, in Abu Dhabi, so I'm happy to be here uh, and surviving a long plane trip, but I'm here. So as Martin mentioned, I'm going to talk tonight about my project of Behind the Lynchings Uncovering Racial Violence in the American South. Let me say a bit about that, and then I'm going to show a video that better explains the project. Then I'll come back and, and contextualize what we've seen in the film um, uh, to research about violence in the South. So racial violence, uh, in many ways, has reemerged as per perpetrated either by law enforcement, policemen, or by private citizens, has reemerged as a really big issue in the United States right now. But racially motivated violence is deeply rooted in American history, and, and, uh, and part of what my, my research and my collaborators' research is dedicated to is better understanding the nature of that violence. So back in 20, 10 years ago now, uh, 207, Margaret Burnham and I, who I'll be showing in a minute on the film, um, launched a, a conference at Northeastern University School of Law, Northeastern University School of Law is in Boston, Massachusetts. And it was a, a, a conference that we thought was going to be about the nature of violence during the civil rights movement. So from after the issues of integration of American schools in 1954 up through the 1960s, the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1964, the Civil Rights Act in 1965, and all that we know is associated with the civil rights movement, um, we thought, well, let's have a better idea of, of the murders that were conducted in the process of that movement and what happened to the perpetrators and to the victims. So surely we thought there's some kind of database that exists. And to our surprise, for all of the ways in which there's been ton, a ton of literature about the civil rights movement, there is virtually very little, with the exception of huge cases of murder, where we have a sense of the scope of the violence. Although, if you look at, um, any of you who are familiar with the civil rights movement knows that there was a tremendous backlash against it um, by many uh, Southerners, white Southerners. But sadly, there is not really at least a reliable sense of the scope and nature of that violence. But as bad as our understanding of civil rights during the civil rights, violence during the civil rights movement, there's even less known about the period before the civil rights movement. So from 19, so we decided we'd look at from 1930 to 1954. We started 1930 because there's been some scholarship that has looked at the question of lynchings. And here, just by way of definition, a lynching is, is a term of art. It's not a legal term but it's the term that basically stands for extra-legal violence. That is, violence that is done outside of due process. It's commonly known sometimes as vigilante violence, um, which doesn't accurately capture it because in certain cases, the perpetrators were the police themselves, what would be known as custodial deaths. That is, persons who were taken into police custody and before they get to the jail are dead. Right? So though that is also against the law. So you have police officers who in certain instances were per perpetrating violence and then private citizens. Um, so we wanted to better understand, so a study has been done which stops at 1930. Um, 
but we decided we wanted to look from 1930 to 1954, stopping at 1954, um, mostly because it's, it's the Brown, connected to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which led to the desegregation of American schools. But 1954 onward, one could hypothesize or reasonably uh, argue that violence at that point was directed at the civil rights movement itself, at the mobilization uh, of, uh, for civil rights. But f so if the period from 1930 to 1954 is right in the heart of what is described in American history as the Jim Crow period, meaning the, the period of legal segregation in the American South. And when I say the American South, I mean the 11 states that made up the Confederacy those are the states that succeeded from the Union during the Civil War. The reason for the Civil War was succession, state rights, states' rights. The states wanted to maintain slavery. The Union did not. So we look at the 11 southern states since after the Civil War. Duke construction, I'll talk about this a little bit later. Uh, they were the states where you had the, the, uh, the institution of de facto, de facto and de jure, by law, segregation. So we thought we would look there and see... What happened? What do we know about these murders? As it turns out, there's virtually nothing that has been done, hence the creation of this database. Professor Burnham and I have a pretty unique relationship. Uh, I'm the political scientist, she's the lawyer, but she's got the labor, that is the students. And the students play an important part of the story as you will soon see in our video, in part because the students help us to investigate these cases. We typically start out with something very basic, a newspaper article. Why newspapers? You can't really rely on local police to have these data. There was no interest in southern states in keeping accurate data, so you can't go to the police department and say how many black people were murdered. Right? You can't necessarily go to um, civil, civil records. Those records aren't going to be um, easily available, nor are court records without some kind of... of, uh, of uh, reason for wanting, for wanting that information. So we start out with a newspaper article and we tell the students, the first thing that you need to do is find out something about this victim. The first thing you have to figure out, was there actually a death? So the student goes and they find the death certificate. Then after that, they try to find the next of kin, who is the person that's closest to the victim. And there's usually grandchildren, sometimes great-grandchildren, we are able to locate. Once the student locates the family member, that family member comes to, becomes the student's client. And from then on, the student is representing the family. And they then begin to do further discovery, documentary discovery, which basically means submitting what are known as FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Acts from the United States government, to either the Department of Justice or the FBI, because sometimes these cases were investigated, sometimes not. They would go down to local counties in different southern states, go into the courthouses, go into musty rooms. This isn't, these are not fancy places. There's no, there's no digital, digital file keeping. It's basically going through books and going through papers and figuring out if they can find out these, this information. So it's quite time intensive. And from those efforts, we in turn are beginning to compile this database. So I'm going to stop now and show you. This is a 15-minute clip, and it explains, it looks at three cases. It explains our methods. Then on the other side, I'll talk a bit about the scholarly context in which to put this and, uh, and, and some of the things that we're finding, and then open it up for questions. And I'm always happy to also, I think the, the, 
the video will give us a lot to talk about. I'm doing questions and answers. We can get the video, please. The word had come through that there was possibility of a drive-by. I remember her screaming and saying, don't hurt him. I remember that. The doctor, as well as the chef, were all in this together, and they, they worked very hard to cover it up. In the years leading up to the Civil Rights era, when segregation was the social order of the South, acts of racial violence were widespread, including murder. Law enforcement turned a blind eye, and the courts usually did nothing. Killers went free, while the victims' families had little choice but to suffer their pain in silence. At Northeastern University School of Law, the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project seeks to keep these crimes from fading into history. The project examines how the legal system failed the victims of racial violence then and pursues remedies now, decades after the crimes were committed. The Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Clinic operates like a law firm. Our cases are cold cases. We work to develop the cases and to obtain some measure of justice for those communities that were affected. We're now working with a period of uh, American history that has really not been adequately explored. The persons who have knowledge about these events, the family members, the witnesses, are aging. The documents are disappearing. And if we don't do this now, this piece of our history will be lost to us and to future generations. In April 1953, in Wilcox County, Alabama, Sheriff Lummy Jenkins and two deputies invaded the cafe operated by 63-year-old Della McDuffie and her husband, William. The lawmen claimed they were playing music after midnight on the Sabbath. Although Della McDuffie was paralyzed and in a wheelchair, Sheriff Jenkins beat her with a rubber hose, and within an hour, she was dead. So he walked in and hit her, told her, get up, old lady, go to bed. So she told him she couldn't get up. So he hit her across her arm on her knees. Then he hit her in the head. And he shot down by her feet a couple of times. That was it. I went down to Alabama to conduct some research on the Della McDuffie case. I dug up the file from Thurgood Marshall to the current head of the Department of Justice asking for him to look into the McDuffie case. But at the time of Della McDuffie's murder, Marshall was working on the case of Brown versus the Board of Education, which the Supreme Court decided in 1954. 
The McDuffie case did not get enough attention from the NAACP, and the Justice Department refused to prosecute the sheriff. So I retrieved the FBI file related to the case from the National Archives. I received the citation for it. I saw a lot of affidavits with witness testimony, including people who were in the cafe that evening, the undertaker, the doctor, Sheriff Lemmy Jenkins, and Ella McDuffie's husband and son. William McDuffie gave a statement to the FBI. I could see him striking at one person, then another with the hose-like weapon. I saw a number hit with the weapon in Sheriff Jenkins' hand. But Dr. Robert E. Dixon's statement reads, I can definitely state that the cause of death was not brought on by any injury to the head, such as a blow. This case essentially was a cover-up, and it never went to court. A year into the investigation, her husband, William, was found dead by his two grandchildren. I found my grandfather, and it appeared that he had been killed by, by way of drowning. They killed him because of the intensity of this investigation. They tried to get him to change his mind and change his statements like everyone else did. He refused to do that. Uh, and they took care of it. There was house fires. Our house was burned down two times. There had been other threats. This man came to the door and he said, you need to get your family and leave here. He said, they are going to kill you. And we left in the middle of the night. They left the house completely furnished, cars, everything was intact. We left just like that. For 32 years, Wilcox County, which was largely black, was Sheriff Lummy Jenkins' personal empire. He gained notoriety for playing by his own rules, legal or not. Lummy Jenkins was known for the way he he enforced law here in Wilcox County. And, uh, and he did it with an iron hand. They followed their own rules, not so much what the law said. Uh, it was tough on, on certain people, especially black folks. Lummy was a, a good sheriff, but uh, somebody else may have a different opinion. The McDuffie story is, in fact, it's a story of violence, it's a story of secrecy, uh, it's a story of banishment. This repeated silencing is a large part of, of what we try to address in our project. My father was Malcolm Wright, and he was a sharecropper. In July 1949, in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, Malcolm Wright, his wife, and children were riding in a mule-drawn wagon heading into town on a Saturday morning when three men in the car yelled that he should stop hogging the road. And we were just riding along, doing our normal, singing our songs. And um, I remember a black car approached us, and they turned around and came back. 
and then they took a object from the trunk of the car. As a child, I thought it was a, a crowbar. It's on, it's on Saturday. This is where Malcolm died at, where they pulled over the wagon, right here. It's day like today. They had to hit him in the head with a, with a, with a car jack, so they told me. And they beat his brains out there in the road. So at the beginning, I just had an article that just mentioned that Malcolm Wright was killed in Houston, Mississippi. I researched online and found various news articles from the 1940s, 1950s. The Historical Genealogical Society, they also had various articles on Malcolm Wright. In the Malcolm Wright case, our student found every single one of the living sons and daughters of Malcolm Wright brought this story back to them. No one had ever talked to the Wright children about what happened to them. James Moore went on trial for his life in the bumperjack murder of Malcolm Wright. Named in the original indictment were James Red Kellum and Eunice Gore. My older sister and Henry, they allowed them and my mom to testify, but they didn't allow the three younger children to testify. When Henry got ready to testify, the judge told him, you make sure you tell the truth and, and you refer to me as Mr. The all-white jury found James Moore not guilty. Kellum and Gore were never tried. All three walked away free and the Wright family had to move out of Mississippi. This is a case in which you have the appearance, but not the reality, of any real justice. We've tried again in this case to get the county to acknowledge that something went wrong here and that it's the duty and the responsibility of the county to make it right. And we've been told no. That can't happen because uh, the perpetrators still live and work in this town. The, the brother of the perpetrator became the mayor of the town and was the mayor for many years. My statement is, if we've already closed it, you start the healing process. A wound. You've got another wound that you're wanting to reopen Reopening a wound, it takes longer to heal. And that's kind of, that's the way I look at it. We was all in, having fun, playing music. And this particular record came on. And my cousin said, do you want to dance? We heard a loud noise. All of a sudden, he turned my hand loose and fell to the floor. And I heard people saying, it just killed that boy. And I looked down on the floor and he was laying down there. October, 1955, 
Mayflower, Texas. Two men, Perry Dean Ross and Joe Simpson, went on a drive-by shooting rampage through the black part of town and fired nine shots into a cafe. Came on down the road and shot in the school bus my dad drove in the car, our car, and came on up Mayflower, you know, shooting. I was hit in the cafe by a bullet, and my sister was too. From what I heard, there was anger from the white community uh, considering uh, schools being built for uh, black kids. I was a law student at Northeastern University School of Law when I started investigating the John Earl Reese case. I got a firsthand look at how deeply this impacted a community and how deeply this incident impacted people. And they were not just impacted by the murder and the shooting of the street and the shooting up of the school, but they were also deeply impacted by the way that that history was erased. I went to the Gregg County Courthouse and looked through records. I found John Earl Reese's death certificate, which indicated that he died from an accident. I spent time figuring out how to get that death certificate changed and making sure that it actually got changed. And I found that Ross, one of the perpetrators, was convicted of murder, but then did not serve any time. He was given a five-year suspended sentence, but not a day in jail. What's particularly remarkable was the platform for restorative justice that Kaylee, working along with that community, was able to build. I helped the community to raise money to obtain a civil rights marker. We also had a street sign named John Earl Reese Road, which is actually on the street where he grew up. My research was collected and put in a binder in the Tatum Library so that younger generations could come to the library and learn about the history of John Earl Reese. Finally, Kaylee Simon helped to plan an all-day event to celebrate the life of John Earl Reese. Hundreds of family and friends attended, the gravestone was unveiled, the civil rights marker was revealed, the street sign dedicated, a painting commemorating John Earl Reese was presented, and at the Tatum Library, a plaque dedicated. Speeches were made, and finally, everyone sat down for a meal together at the community church. And we were so proud to participate in the John Earl Reese Memorial. It was a wonderful event, well attended, and everyone there walked away with a, a blessing in their heart. After so many, many years, even as time went by and everything, that soon it was time for gestures. Something happened in this community, and it was important enough that we came together and there is a marker. And then just across the road there is John Earl's Lane. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The CRRJ Clinic is really at the heart of Northeastern's unique approach to legal education, which is that students learn not only from books, but they learn by doing. I feel so lucky as a law student to have come down here and to be welcomed by this community. And I want to make it my life's work to make sure that this is never forgotten.
close this down, guys. Going to put the other thing down? So that's our project. That's kind of what we do. Um, so I thought I'd take some time to say a bit about where this fits within how scholars are thinking about the period and, uh, and say a bit about how violence has been studied and then open it up for questions. So in a way, when thinking about looking at this, it would seem that, um, that the U.S. Would be, an, would be an interesting place to think about these issues. So this is, my, as, as I'm a comparativist, I study comparative politics. And so the issue of democratization, that is how a country's political institutions and its social norms becomes democratic, has been a central concern of political scientists. It is an important question that has emerged quite forcefully in our time with the end of military dictatorships in Latin America, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the ending of apartheid in South Africa, with the reunification of Germany, and with the ending of military, certain military regimes in many African countries. But the discussion of democratization would seemingly be one in which the U.S. Uh, would, be, would not be included. You don't think about it. After all, the U.S. is viewed as the world's exemplar of democracy with three independent yet connected branches of government anchored in the U.S. Constitution, the rule of law. That is certainly true, but as this video shows, that is not the whole story. The U.S. and certain regions within the U.S. have gone through a period of democratization in the mid-20th century, what we now call the Civil Rights Movement. But my research, as, you, as, as we know, focuses in the period before that, what some scholars have described as authoritarian in the American South before democratization. So I'm describing the American South as an authoritarian regime existing within a larger democracy. So after we, as you all may know, after the Civil War, which ended in 1865, and between that period and 1900, southern state legislat leg legislatures basically actively tried to dis actively disenfranchise uh, African-American citizens um, and this disenfranchisement basically took away the, the right to vote. Now, you may know that after the, Civil War, after the Civil War, there were three amendments which were passed, the 13th Amendment which ended slavery, the 14th Amendment, which is uh, equal protection as well as constituting citizenship at the national level, and the 15th Amendment, which gave men the right to vote. Women did not get the right to vote in, in the U.S. until 1920 with the 19th Amendment. But state southern legislatures developed procedures and the whole and the sole really purpose of these procedures was to disenfranchise the voters. And so common tactics included, for example, asking certain citizens to pay a poll tax, which also had the, the, uh, uh, the consequence of, of disenfranchising many poor white farmers. And sometimes had uh, uh, citizens uh, 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 pass a literacy test, which sometimes meant in, in interpreting long legal passages, oftentimes tests that the examiners themselves could not pass. So in effect, um, authoritarian rule, as, at least as it pertained to African Americans, was achieved through legal means. It was made competitive, so in that regard, by having it such that you, you had the 15th Amendment, but you made it impossible for people to vote. So you have, you, you have a democracy, but not really, right? It was a way that authoritarian rule in the southern states was able it was kept compatible with national uh, democratic governance at the national level. 
So if one lived, for example, in one part of the country, you lived in democracy. And if you lived in South Carolina, where my mother was raised, you lived on authoritarianism. So this difference, authoritarianism at a regional level, but democratic at a national level, has also been the historical experience of several Latin American countries, namely Mexico and Argentina. And indeed, political scientists who study the Americas look at Mexico and Argentina and the American South as examples of authoritarian regimes existing within nominally democratic states. So that's what interests me about this as a political scientist and as a comparativist, not only looking at the American South um, in its own right, but also comparing it to other uh, 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 government arrangements where you can have non-democracies existing within nominal democracies at the federal level. So with that, let me, I want to say a bit more just about what it means uh, to think about authoritarianism, because in one way, much of a political science tends to focus on that people can't vote. But my interest is less that, and it's more as important as that is. Uh, um, and one of the reasons why voting is obviously so important is because if people can vote, then they can hold their governments accountable. And so by not allowing black citizens to vote, they were unable to, to hold their governors and mayors accountable. But another important part of, of, of what made this um, authoritarian was also the, uh, the norms of Jim Crow, meaning the ways in which blacks and whites were able to interact or not with each other, segregation, which extended not only to public schools, but to hospitals, lunch counters, cemeteries, churches, any public space was segregated. And that was throughout southern states. Um, and finally, uh, what I think has been most important and most understudied, if not most important, which is the use of violence. So I, I, I explained at the beginning why we started with 1930, but I did mention that there was a book that came before and a database that was developed by two sociologists. Um, it's, it's a book called the Pest, A Festival of Violence and Analysis of Southern Lynchings, um, from 1882 to 1930, and they, and they look as we do. They start with, with newspaper accounts, and then try to find other corroborating evidence to show that these deaths did happen. So according to them, between 1882 and 1930, they, they identify approximately um, 2,800 victims located in 10 southern states. Of this number, nearly, uh, five, uh, nearly 2,500 were African-Americans, um, 300 were white men and white women. And of the black victims, 94% were murdered by what would then call large lynch mobs. Um, so their focus tends to be on mob violence as opposed to riots, um, and they aren't necessarily interested in murders committed by one or two persons. But as I mentioned earlier, the issue of lynching, is, though not a term of art, is one that scholars have struggled to deal with. How do we actually think about a lynching? And in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, the NAACP and the Tuskegee Institute, which is an all-black uh, university in Alabama, were both competing to count the number of, of lynchings. And they were fighting over the definition. The main point of contention between the two was that the NAACP wanted to include police officers and the Tuskegee Institute did not. Tuskegee did not want to include police officers because they were trying to get the police on the side of black Americans. And they felt that by saying that they were perpetrators, they would make it politically impossible for them to get white support to stop um, lynchings. 
The NAACP had fought from 1930, from 1900 to 1930, well, based, from 1910, rather, to 1930 to pass federal anti-lynching legislation. They were never successful. Southern senators would constantly filibuster, meaning they would get on the floor of the U.S. Senate and make it impossible to have a vote. So there was never any anti-lynching legislation passed. They were quite successful. Filibustering was quite successfully used by uh, Southerners. It was again used in 1965 to stop passage of the Civil Rights Act. They filibustered the Civil Rights Act for 57 days, but eventually it was passed. That was because it was passed in, 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 in 65 in large part because of now we had the civil rights movement and mass mobilization. But the period that I'm describing, the NAACP had nowhere level, level that level of support from, there was not yet a civil rights movement. Black Americans were not yet mobilized in that way. And there was insufficient support from the rest of the country to um, allow for the passage of anti-lynching legislation. So when the NAACP and the Tuskegee Institute got together, they had to decide, how are we going to think about lynchings? How are we going to describe these murders? What makes them different than just someone going up and killing someone? Right? So they had to come up with a definition, and it had four elements. The first was that evidence that a person has been killed, right? So it couldn't be rumors of people missing, because that was also pretty, pretty common in the South. People would disappear. Um, and... Um, and sometimes they were killed and sometimes they were not. They had fled. So they had to have actual evidence. As you know, from our project, we make sure that there's a death certificate. It's one of the first places that the students look. The sec second was that the person must have met their death illegally. And here was the bone of contention between the Tuskegee Institute and the NAACP. The NAACP thought that it should be expansive enough to include police. Tuskegee thought not. A group of three or more persons must have participated in the killing, so they weren't interested necessarily in mob violence and such. And most importantly, the group must have acted under the pretext of service to justice, tradition, or race. So those are the definitions, and Professor Burnham and I, and I have largely gone along with that um, when we think about coding and, and categorizing these murders that we find in newspapers. So I'm kind of reluctant in certain ways to give the number where we are now, in part because this is still a project in process. This film was made about four years ago. Uh, one of the reasons why we're hesitant is we're out there now trying to meet, still gather cases. We have students right now out in the field. Um, as Professor Burnham said, people are dying. Uh, so we try to get there quickly. In one or two cases, we've actually had our students call and we think in one case actually call a perpetrator. Um, he was responsible for a death in Mobile, Alabama. And we, uh, 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 she called the home of someone who she suspected may have been the perpetrator. Um, he had never been arrested. And she started asking him about the murderer. And he said, who are you? Who are you? And his wife said, get off the phone. <laughs> so anyway, he got off the phone. We, we gave that case to the FBI. We're, the, uh, Professor Burnham, although she's a practicing attorney, is not taking on these cases to uh, prosecute them. We hand them to the local to the authorities, in this case, the FBI. Since our job is mostly investigative and scholarly, and truth be told, that's pretty rare at this point. The cases that we're looking at in the 30s and the 40s, many people are, are, dying, are dying off, so we don't quite have that. That was pretty unusual, I must say. But I think at this moment, we are comfortable in saying between 1930 and 1954, we can substantiate about 400 deaths. Um, we haven't yet coded to figure out which, we haven't organized them 
um, we haven't tabulated them yet according to which states and such and, and in a way that I can convey that information to you. But that is the end goal at the end of the day, to provide something which we think will allow scholars to, to delve even deeper. But as importantly, when we go out and talk about our, our project, I oftentimes go to family reunions to talk to families and such. Uh, they're interested in the stories, of course. They're interested in the big picture. But as one of the cases as, as talked about in the film with the Wright family, they had not, the mother had not told the children um, all that had happened to their father. I mean, they had some idea because they'd been there, but they left and they hadn't really talked about it in a way. And what we found in a lot of these cases is that when we come forward with the, to, and talk to the families and bring them all this evidence, they are obviously very thankful um, uh, more and, and, and don't expect any kind of justice legal-wise, but certainly are appreciative of the public acknowledgement. And that's a big part of this, which is telling stories that are untold. And at the end of the day, our goal is to have a fuller and richer picture of American history, not one that is uh, uh, glorified, not one that is necessarily, this isn't meant to be negative in a way, it's just to tell the truth. Uh, and also, as I mentioned, looking at the scholarship that's been done on Latin America and other countries, thinking about the ways in which authoritarianism can exist within democratic states. So there's a, 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 a scholarly aspect to it, and then there's also the human aspect, and then finally there is the legal aspect. The law matters in these cases, and although the law was not followed in certain parts of the country for too many years, um, it was a source of strength for us for now when we think about investigating. And even at the time, um, sometimes there were least trials, if not convictions. And it's an example of the ways in which institutions, they can be institution of failure, but then at the same time, um, years later, they can be a, 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 strengthening, a, a strengthening of institutions and they are being marshaled to bring justice uh, long denied. So with that, I'll end um, in the interest of having uh, a conversation, and um, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu. Edu slash institute.